Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association. I'm Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. If you have a project or publication that you would like to discuss on the podcast, I would be delighted to hear from you. You can email me on press at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 5th of October 2017, and this is episode number 34. In this programme, I interview psychiatrist and historian Dr. Sarah Stephanie Linden on shell shock in Britain and Germany during the Great War. Stephanie has just produced a new book on the subject published by Hellion and Co. I spoke to her through the marvels of internet wizardry and started our interview by asking her to introduce herself. So I am a psychiatrist and medical historian with a particular interest in human reaction to psychological trauma and adversity. I trained in Germany and the UK and during my work in North Wales I came across medical records from the old mental hospital in Denby which documented reasons for psychiatric admissions in the early 20th century. I discovered that a considerable number of admissions were connected with the Welsh religious revival. This period of religious excitement seemed to make people more vulnerable to develop a psychotic illness. The religious revival in turn had been a collective response to the miserable living conditions in the North Wales quarrymen. This link between adversity, religious revival and psychosis made it clear to me that intense experiences can lead to periods of mental illness. And this indeed is a very interesting question for psychiatrists also today, because we are still seeking to understand the factors that predispose to and trigger psychiatric diseases. My next endeavour was to understand how the trauma suffered by millions of men on the battlefields of the Great War and by millions of men and women behind the lines affected their mental health. And then an opportunity came up to study exactly this question as part of a PhD at um, the Centre for Humanities and Health at King's College in London. So when we talk about shell shock, what exactly are we referring to? Shell shock was the term coined by the British psychologist Charles Myers for the psychological battle casualties of the Great War. It is an outdated term, but still the best we have to describe what was going on. It captures the ambiguity of the concept then and today. The reference to the shell reflects the frontline battle exposure of many of the affected soldiers, but also the idea that somehow the explosion might have a direct bearing on the development of psychological symptoms, which was later revealed to be untrue. And then the term shock describes the often sudden and dramatic onset of the symptoms, which could literally paralyze the soldier, not just for minutes, but for weeks or months. In current scholarship, we use shellshock as an umbrella term for the various kinds of psychological reactions to combat stress that were not directly caused by physical injuries. Symptoms can be broadly divided into neurological and psychological. Neurological symptoms comprised, for example, paralysis, abnormal movements, gait disorders, blindness and deafness. Psychological symptoms range from brief states of confusion 
to long-term psychotic illness with delusions and hallucinations. Many patients suffered from combinations of both symptoms and doctors found it challenging to classify them as either neurological or psychiatric. It was one of the characteristics of shell shock that it defied any known categories of medical knowledge and experience. I would like to introduce a concept here for the non-medical audience, functional or medically unexplained symptoms. These are actually symptoms that often resemble recognized medical disease, for example, seizures of epilepsy or tremor of Parkinson's disease, but the patient does not actually have any markers of this disease. And the most likely explanation is that the bodily symptoms are caused by a psychological reaction. This was also the model adopted by most doctors for shell shock by the end of the war. But after a very long controversial debate between the adherents of such a psychological explanation and those doctors who thought that symptoms were caused by mechanical effects of the shell explosion. One very interesting aspect is as well that many soldiers did not develop shell shock while serving at the front. In fact, quite a few breakdowns occurred while soldiers were on leave or just before they were due to be sent to the front line. I describe one of these remarkable cases in my book. This 27-year-old Scottish pilot was involved in a disastrous plane crash. He was unconscious for several days and when he woke up, his legs were paralyzed. He had fractured his spine. And this young man was confined to bed for a year and when he was taken out of the plaster cast, the whole body plaster cast, the use of his legs completely returned. A few months later, he started flying again. And ironically, it was not the horrors of war that finally broke down his mental resistance, not a fall from 2,000 feet, but a minor slip on the transport to England. So after this really minor fall, his legs got weaker and weaker and he started shaking so that he was unable to walk. The doctors had no doubt that these symptoms were unrelated to the injuries he had obtained during his plane crash. His symptoms recurred because he had developed shell shock. And I see in my database cases like that, soldiers who endured um, the most terrifying battle conditions and then returned hope, uh, home and broke down completely. Now today we talk about um, such conditions as, as post-traumatic stress disorder and then you've got shell shock in the First World War. Now are these conditions related or are they different? So um, my supervisor Professor Edgar Jones and Professor Simon Wesley of the Institute of Psychiatry in London have shown that combat reactions change over time some wars even had their signature psychological reactions, such as obviously shell shock in World War I or post-traumatic stress disorder after the Vietnam War. For example, the neurological features of shell shock, such as paralysis, blindness and deafness, are rarely seen in today's traumatized veterans. Yet there are commonalities in the clinical presentation of shell shock and modern stress reactions. For example, the initial confusion or twilight states, also flashbacks and reenactments of the traumatizing scene, 
and lasting states of irritability and hypervigilance. We do not fully, fully understand yet what cultural and social factors are driving this change in the presentation of combat stress reactions. And this is actually one area of my current research. So when you look at Shellshock in your book, what specific areas do you examine? In my book, I particularly focus on symptoms, illness models and treatment approaches for Shellshock. Very detailed medical records of soldiers with Shellshock have survived in the archives of the leading hospitals of Britain and Germany. I was particularly interested in the comparison of the approach to psychological trauma in these two countries. Before the war, exchange of medical knowledge between Britain and Germany had been intense and Many British neurologists had actually spent training years at German academic centres such as Berlin, Leipzig, Frankfurt and Heidelberg. Medical research continued on both sides throughout the war and I found many papers on the diagnosis, treatment and outcome of shell shock in British and German wartime medical journals. Some of them even cited each other and I found it fascinating to see that exchange of ideas and knowledge carried on even whilst the two countries were at war with each other. What I found in my research was that there was or there were differences in the symptoms of shell shock in Britain and Germany. In the records of the Charité Hospital in Berlin, I discovered a high rate of seizures, so-called non-epileptic attacks. There were much fewer of these cases in my British case records in London, the National Hospital at Queen Square. Again, this is likely owed to cultural differences, which we still do not fully understand. What is fascinating is that psychological trauma can express itself in such different ways, even in the same era and in two populations of soldiers who are just separated by a few yards of no man's land. What's, what was amazing from your book is the approaches that doctors took to treating shell shock and the effectiveness of those treatments. Could you just give us a bit of background on how they managed conditions and were they successful in treating soldiers who, who came through their door? Yeah, so, so once doctors had figured out that shell shock was likely a psychological phenomenon, they started treating it with psychological tools, almost precursors of modern psychotherapy. They used behavioral therapy and rewarded patients when their symptoms improved. They isolated soldiers from their comrades when symptoms deteriorated. Some doctors, for example, WHR Rivers at Craig Lockhart near Edinburgh, a treatment center for shell shock offices, used elements of Freudian psychoanalysis. However, hypnosis and suggestive therapies were more suited to large numbers of patients and used by doctors in both Germany and Britain, for example, by neurologist Max Nonne in Hamburg and Arthur Hurst in Netley, the large military hospital near Southampton. Another more controversial line of treatment used electrotherapy. For example, in a patient with a paralyzed arm or leg, doctors would stimulate peripheral nerves and elicit some movement and thus demonstrate to the patient that the function of that limb was actually preserved. This was actually the um, main treatment doctors used at the National Hospital at Queen Square in London. In the wartime publications, doctors on both sides claimed high success rates for their treatment. Yet most soldiers entering the medical system with psychological trauma were never sent back to the front line. British and German doctors concluded that such cases would not be able to stand the 
strain of active service without relapsing and therefore recommended the vast majority of servicemen for discharge from their military duties. And indeed, looking at post-war medical records now, it seems that many soldiers never recovered from their war experience. So when we look at the treatment and management of shell shock in the Great War, are there any lessons we can um, learn today? My research has shown that um, psychological therapies developed for shell shock symptoms were promising, at least in the short run. Today, um, up to a third of patients who see their family physicians complain of medically unexplained symptoms. And these functional syndromes, many of them similar to those developed by World War I soldiers, are usually chronic and difficult to treat constituting one of the major public health and socioeconomic challenges of our time. Although many of the specific shell shock treatments were forgotten after the armistice, they did experience a revival in the 1970s and 1980s when small case series of isolation treatment and electrical stimulation were published in leading psychiatric journals. Modern treatment approaches to functional disorders are surprisingly similar to the Queen Square interventions a century ago. So this is one of the lessons. The other important lesson is that, um, as I have already mentioned, post-traumatic reactions are culturally dependent. For example, as I said, functional seizures were more common among German soldiers as compared to British soldiers. So the cultural dependence of psychological reactions to adversity plays an ever-increasing role in the current humanitarian crisis. And this is why it is important to look at those expressions of distress. <laughs> yeah, thanks. <laughs> I didn't, sorry. Don't I didn't worry, quite Stephanie. finish it. <laughs> and finally, yeah. Stephanie, where can people get your book? They can order it from my publisher's website, Helion and Company, and obviously from other military booksellers. And the book is also available from other online retailers. Stephanie, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.